Mr. Mike Danny of MDM, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure. Um, before we get into the uh, into the nuts and bolts of it, why don't you just take a moment and tell everybody a little bit about your background, experience in the music business, and uh, and then uh, parlay that into how you got things rolling with uh, MDM itself. Sure. So my my background is actually uh, in sales and marketing. Um, that's where I got my start at the major labels with uh, Sony Music Canada um, and Universal Music Canada in a variety of different sales roles that weren't related to country. Uh, I've done everything from kids audio and video to classical jazz and strategic marketing, which is compilation packages, uh, to working for an independent distribution company that actually signed a deal with one of your clients, uh, Aaron Prechette, way, way back in the day. And that's where I met Carmen Choney and Mitch Merrick. I was uh, director of sales and marketing for English Canada for a company called Fusion 3. And we signed Aaron for distribution to his Big Wheel record. And that kind of got my foot wet into the Canadian country music scene. And at that time, our offices in Toronto were in the basement of where the factory building was. And I became very good friends and quite close with Heather Ostertag, who helped me out big time. Uh, And then in the height of the recession in 2008, uh, much like the times that we're in right now, I I was packaged off. And I had started MDM Recordings and incorporated MDM Recordings as a company that was just going to get me through until I got my next corporate gig. Um, but that never happened. We, we, we had started to have some success with the production and distribution uh, in the early days of MDM Recordings with Julian Austin and Melanie Doan and a band out of Calgary. I had my first uh, top 10 with uh, by the name of Joe Hick. And... Uh, at that point, um, Mitch and Carmen were still working with with Aaron, but as we got into 2009, uh, that working relationship had dissolved, and Mitch had been sent some demos of uh, Chad Brownlee, uh, who had just finished up his hockey career, and these were kind of Jack Johnson-ish type songs, and um, we signed them, and, and we partnered up, the three of us, and, and at the same time that we were getting Chad up and off the ground, we, we signed Bobby Wills, and then I was also going through my Facebook feed on a Saturday morning and came across two videos from a 19-year-old female by the name of Jess Moskaluk, who uh, we have signed and, and worked with and, and obviously now is a client of, of yours through uh, Invictus on the, on the agency side of things. So it's been, it's been quite a ride, but it's, it's ironic that the shirt I'm wearing is an insert to a 45 when I started in this business, vinyl was just going out, and now vinyl's coming back in. And it's—I've been doing this a long time, I've over thirty years now. Not—I'm not, not going to give you the precise years, but it's over thirty. Oh, that's all right. Yeah, no, it's—it's uh, it's interesting how this business is so cyclical. And and you guys had some really great success with Fusion Three out of the gate uh, to go back to prior to MDM years because uh, up until Aaron had his his number one hit two years ago, you guys actually had Aaron's highest charting single. Right out of the gate with Big Wheel, I think that landed number three on BDS at the time, yeah, and it was like you landed with a splash in country music. Now, do you find that, and, and it, it must be this way, that the more success you have, the more the sort of floodgates open on artists wanting to sign with your company, and I'm sure you're still dealing with that on a regular basis. Now, one thing I can say about you guys is that you sign great artists, but they're all really different. Like Bobby Wills is a completely different thing than Chad Brownlee was at the time. Um, uh, 
you know, Jess, completely different from from Tyler Joe Miller, who's of course been one of your more recent success stories. Uh, what's the key in terms of what you're looking for as a label? We can talk about the management part too, but as a label, what are you really looking for when somebody approaches you? Well, for us, it always starts with the songs. Um, and, and it's it's like dating. It's it's very much like a marriage when you get into a record recording deal or even a management deal for, for that much because you're working together exceptionally close. But for us, it, it starts with the songs. Then it starts with your personality and your understanding of what the music business is. And I say that kind of loosely in that I don't expect you to know the ins and outs of the business to the same extent that I do, because you, you never will. You're going to be 30 years younger than I am, and I've been around a lot longer. But I do want to see that you have a basic understanding of business and the understanding of just how much work it's going to be to make it in the Canadian country music scene excluding the rest of the world, concentrating just on Canada, because it's tough. It's not easy. I, I'm, I'm thrilled that you actually made mention of each of our artists being radically different. That is by design, so that even though we have currently four males on the roster, each one has their own lane and their own sound and their own vibe, which allows us to maneuver the landscape a little bit differently than what another label would who had four males that all sound the same. Because it's, it's exceptionally hard, as you know, to get artists on the radio as it is. But if they're all coming in and they're all sounding the same, then you're just compounding the problem in terms of trying to break through the, the stack of stuff that's out there for Canadian country radio right now. Right. And it's just a matter of time before one of them fires you. You know, that that's the other reality about it. You yeah. know, it's like if if you have all these artists and they all feel like they're competing for the same spots, uh, at some point that's going to breed team animosity, you know, yeah. and and that's the last thing you want, especially when you guys are building this great, powerful management company and, and label. And, and it's it's very boutique by design. Right. So, yes. so how do you manage those conflicts? Because there must be opportunities where you know, someone crops up and, and you must be evaluating that and looking at them and going, is this going to be a conflict with artist A, B or C that I already have? Mm -hmm. And then how do you weigh that out to to maximize your opportunity still? Because we're still all in business. Yeah. So that's an interesting question. I, and I never really thought about it too much up until we had to re-sign new acts in the last little while. And I'm talking about Donna Maron and uh, and Tyler Joe Miller, who are brand new signings to our company. And initially, I'm not going to say there was pushback, but there was there was some artists shaking their head going like, hey, what are you doing? Like, I'm over here. And I'm like, yes, I know you're over there. But in order for us to keep the doors open and to keep moving forward, we need to replace the revenue that had left from three artists that we had lost in a nine-month period, one of them being Chad. And that was a substantial amount of income that I wasn't going to make back on one David James single. And that's not to center David out, but one David James single is not going to replace the revenue that, that we lost when, when Chad walked out the door. So I was like, we we need to, my sell back to our artist roster was we need to get this, this roster back to a full functioning label with consistent uh, release schedule because if you start to get success it makes it easier for the other artists to get that break to get into radio because right. now you need some like, leverage 
Oh yeah, absolutely. You need every, and right now in today's climate with, with just the way it is, you need every angle that you can possibly work to convince radio to play your songs. So if you're coming in going, okay, here's the new David James single. Oh, by the way, you know that MDM has just gone number one with Jess Moskaluk and just went number one with Tyler Joe Miller on a brand new artist, on a brand new song. And all of a sudden the momentum is there. Radio can feel it. The industry can feel it. And it actually works for those other artists that have been here a little bit longer. Um, to get that opportunity or the, or the chance. So congratulations, you know, by the way, on, on those two number ones and on the market share that you're getting now with MDM. I mean, it's, it's gotta be your best year ever. Uh, it's, it's going to be close revenue wise. It will be our best year ever for sure. Uh, back in 2016, at one point we had three songs in the top 15 at Canadian country radio, which we haven't been able to do yet, but I'll, I'll take those number ones. Uh, those were special. For, for a variety of different reasons. And, you know, Jess being um, the queen of Canadian country, I guess, currently in the current landscape of females out there, for her to finally get one was was an amazing feeling for all of us. And, and the Tyler Joe thing, I knew we had a, three good songs. Um, I did, you can't, you can't expect that to happen on the first song, the way that it did. It was just like, it was like we had sat in a back room and strategized a three year marketing plan and everything worked and came together, which is not what we did. We, we took our time to make sure that we had the, everything done in the back end, but at a certain point you've got to release the song and the song just reacted and we, we caught lightning in a bottle. Which, which was amazing, amazing for him and, and amazing for our company as we rebounded from where we were, which was you know, a couple of pretty tough years when, when, when we were you know, going through artist departures and, and just not getting songs on the radio to the same extent uh, that we were, which is funny yeah. because we were talking about you know, the compounding of momentum when you're going this way. It compounds the other way as well, too, when, when you're struggling. It, it's just you cannot catch a break. Um, yeah, there's that there's that old uh, 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 line in the in the New Testament that says, uh, to those who have everything, more will be given. And to those who have nothing, everything will be taken. You know, and, <laughs> and, and nowhere is that more true than when it comes to momentum in the music industry. You know, now, I said this, I said this in in. And I think it was in the we, MDM did a 10 year documentary and I was like, I wish at the time that we did that documentary, we were, we were sliding. And I was like, I wish that we would have celebrated those highs a little bit more than what we did uh, because you never know if you're ever going to get back up there again. Fortunately, we've been, we've been able to ride this, this through and get back on the other side, but I, I do make sure that we celebrate those and we don't take them for granted anymore. That's for sure. Now, in the case of Tyler Joe Miller, you got this this kid who came out of nowhere. He has a number one record. How much pressure does that put on you and the rest of the team now to follow up that level of success with another unprecedented uh, uh, substantiation in the marketplace? I mean, it's it's got to be pretty hot and heavy for you guys, but I'm sure you're managing that as well with uh, with Tyler Joe. One of the good things about having a debut single going number one on a brand new artist is that the artist, for the most part, and Tyler Joe is not stupid by any sense, stretch the imagination, but everything that is happening to him right now is he's going through it for the very first time. So he right. doesn't really have anything to compare it to. He is relying heavily on the management team, which is Mitch Merritt and myself 
and the label team to guide him through the process of what he's going through while he is learning and understanding more about how the music business works. This, there hasn't been another Canadian artist to do what he's what he's done. Is there pressure on us to to try and get a second number one? Yeah, yeah, of course there is. You want that because there hasn't been an artist, a brand new artist who's come out one, you know, with two singles in a row, both going number one. If it, if it doesn't happen, it's not going to be the end of it. It, 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 it's, it's a learning curve as we go through it, but um, we want that. We, we certainly are aiming. We're, we're top 20 right now on the second single. Well, we just had a few moves and it's moved up the chart a little bit more. Um, do we have a shot? Yeah, we have a shot because everybody's in. Every station is in on the, on this kid on the second single. Now it's up to us to manage that flow and make sure we get it right when we when we push the button to try and get it there. And speaking of pressure, on the other side of things, you had this artist in in Jess who yeah. had won multiple CCMAs including Female Artist of the Year three times. She'd won a Juno. Uh, she'd had a platinum record with cheap wine and cigarettes that didn't even go top 10 at the time. Yeah. And I know how hard you guys, because obviously I was involved in the internal discussions, how hard you guys were pushing to set her up to get a career number one, because that was that was one of the boxes you felt you really needed to check on her behalf. Yeah. And and again, what what gets lost in all of this in, in terms of those 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 accolades that you just mentioned for Jess, one of the biggest ones was that she was the first female to have a top three single in Canada since 2008, I believe. So even though the other females that came in had number ones before she did, Jess was once again the first female through the wall, per se, but in this case was one of the last of the current females to achieve that success. So it was very much on our minds. Um, we found a, a year and a half ago that we were struggling. Um, just we had released 16 singles in a row from Jess. We had not taken a break. And and it was like, and I finally went to Jess and I'm like, we need to shut you down. We need to just step back. We can do this and, and take the time to go go write songs. Go, don't write chasing chart positions. Just go have fun writing songs. And in the meantime, we'll take a break. Let's do some cover songs and cover videos because she was a YouTube artist. But when we come back and we know we've got those three songs, let's do something totally unique that we would never do. And that ended up being flying a good chunk of the major music directors uh, out to Kelowna last October, just after we had gotten back from Australia. And it it, it set up the three songs that, that, that we've had and it set up country girls to go number one because everybody bought in just based on our presentation and, and three pretty solid songs as well too. Yeah. It was a brilliant, brilliant idea. And basically um, uh, you explained it very well, but sort of a, re a reverse radio tour. So you yeah. took, you took the program directors, you flew them into Kelowna, you took them to a winery for a night out, nice dinner. Uh, Jess was there uh, you got up and spoke about the album, how excited you were about the songs. She got up and uh, and and performed live and thanked uh, everybody in the audience and, you know, built a lot of goodwill. Now, that song had the momentum to potentially go top 10 or top five or number one on its own validity. But that concept really drove it home and really reminded the folks at radio how much you cherish those relationships. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and it, we, we had some fun with it as well, too, because you, we had 30 people in a room. So anybody who's watching this, who's ever been on a radio tour, knows how, just how grueling it is to go across Canada for three and a half weeks doing the same pitch and the same dog and pony show uh, every day, sometimes two and three times a day. It, it's exhausting to do. And we were like, you know, Let's change it up. Let's bring everybody to us, create a major event for these people who who get treated very well from the labels and and, and we needed to we needed to make our independent label look like a major label. So we put on a major label function with a major label expense that was tied to it, but in this instance, it relaunched Jess as a real solid entity in the Canadian country music scene and positioned a great song for us to to get her back and get that number one which was which was the goal but you know that that event and and again if you remember correctly we had tables there was four or five tables and we strategically had just sit at one table for appetizers to talk to all the music directors and then move to the next one for main course to talk to everybody then the next one for coffee and then the, the final table for for dessert so she literally had the chance to she didn't get to eat herself but she got the chance to hang out with everybody and have those conversations that you just don't get a chance to have and then it was in an environment where we could turn up the music and and i i've never seen music directors dancing to an artist's song but everybody was having a great time that night it was it was a lot of fun and well worth the expense on the other side and it did what we needed to do yeah and jess has such a such an ingratiating manner about her you know she's just such a lovely human being she's authentically engaged with you when you're talking to her you know she's um uh, of course she plays the game and of course she wants to be successful, but she has yeah. a way of presenting herself as someone who isn't trying to work an angle on you. Someone mm-hmm. who literally just wants to talk to you, just, you know, chat about your kids, like whatever it is, uh, yeah. whatever interest that people have, Jess has that magical ability to just make them feel like they're the most important person in the room, even though she's sitting right beside them. And that's, that's something that, that I find as a manager and correct me if I'm wrong. It's like, it's almost intrinsic. It's really hard to teach or train somebody to be that ingratiating, that thoughtful, that engaged. And she just has it in spades. Yeah. I think a lot of that is, is her upbringing as well too. Um, she was, she was, she's a, a prairie girl. Um, and she is the same. She is the same. I'm going to say a woman now because we've been working together for 11 years 11 years as what she was when she was a young girl at 19 when i first met her and, and first started working with her and the deal that that i made with her after we had the success of light up the night was you know let's let's partner because i knew that the major labels would be sniffing around to to potentially try and scoop her and i'm like let's partner so i'm going to give you 50 percent ownership in your masters um and I'm gonna. I'll teach you the business, and we will become business partners. You, your your job is still to be the artist and be the best artist that you possibly can. But I'm gonna make you a business person as well too, so that when you're sitting having those conversations, that you understand what those conversations mean and how those you know, those conversations go. And she's embraced that. She is one of the. She's the. I would say the smartest most business savvy artist that that I've met in addition to being ex- exceptionally gracious mm-hmm. and extremely talented as well too. 
She knows how to ask the right questions in the right manner. Yeah. Uh, and that's imperative. Yeah. Now, as you're signing artists as a manager and, and you have this label, obviously, is there ever a temptation for you guys to take an artist you're managing to a major because of the clout they might have? Like, how do you navigate that internal conflict? That's a good question. Um, we have always used the label to access the, the funding that is available uh, that's out there. So in the early days of MDM recordings, when I was you know traveling to Nashville quite a bit, and my, my focus was I got to get a major label deal. I got to get a deal for Chad. I got to get a deal for the roster. I've got to do this and do that. And it just dawned on me that it, it, it was, if we did get one, we would, the artist would pretty much be signing away a lot of, of everything. Um, and so I convinced myself and I convinced Jess who, who we did have some, some, some talks about, you know, upstreaming to our major label partners and all the rest of that stuff. But at the end of the day, I was like, you realize that if we do upstream, you're not going to have any ownership in your master. You're not going to have a whole lot of say in your a and Ring of your project. And you're, you're, quite possibly just going to be, you know, dance monkey dance type thing. And I'm like, if you want to do that, we can go down that, 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 that avenue. But you would, she'd already been a business partner with me. So I don't think it would have worked for her in that instance. Um, and, and most of the other acts now, because we've been able to prove ourselves over the years, we're competing with the major labels. We are doing everything that we can possibly do to get you on the radio. We've had the top tens. We've got a Juno Award behind us. We have numerous CCMAs, um, both on the artist side and on the label side. So we can do it. We just need the songs, and we need the right artist package to be able to make that happen. So when you can have those conversations, it, it does make it a whole lot easier. Now, if an artist... Um, came to me one day and said, you know what, I want to upstream this song or, or I want to stay with you to manage, but I'd like you to, to, to package me off into a major label deal. And then, yeah, we'll have, go have those conversations. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. But I think it yeah. would be an eye opener for the artist as well, too, to sit in those rooms and have those conversations because they'd be radically different than the label and management calls that we have. Right. Right. And then I think that that's, that's an important place to navigate your business from a place of security where you know the job you do is of the highest level. You know, yeah. you're able to access some funding that might not be available to major label artists, right? Yeah. And you know that you're going to take a real hands-on approach with that artist on A&R, on, on, you know, all aspects of song selection and on marketing. You know, it's not yeah. going to be a plug in and play and bill it all back. It's going to be a, Oh, here's strategically how we're going to lay out this project and this is how we're going to spend the money so that we actually see an ROI on it rather than just dumping it into the machine. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and just to, that just event that we did was one of the biggest expenditures that we ever had is in a marketing role, um, but we had to do it. We had to do it. Now, did, did that money come back? Yeah, and it, and it will continue to come back. Um, down the line but in the meantime it's 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 watching those pennies along the way so right. we're we are exceptionally fortunate in that we're based in ontario we have the ontario music fund that supports us and mdm recordings 
with a, with a lot of money. We, we've been around now and we're established with Factor as a mech company, which um, gets us into envelope funding, which helps immensely in terms of being able to have the dollars and cents rolling in to be able to employ the support mechanism that you need on the back end for an artist, but also to have the dollars and cents around to do those marketing things that need to be done when you really need to step on the gas and, and do what you need to do. Right. So at, from that point of view, you can compete. Yes. And and you guys have built some really great relationships at uh, Sirius Satellite Radio. I know you've got some success stories in that domain. You've also uh, done a really good job at prioritizing streaming, which has become something that's imperative uh, not only from a revenue standpoint these days, but it does help substantiate the argument of how you're going to get ads at radio when you have those impressive streaming numbers out of the gate. Yeah. Now, what's an example of a single where, or do you have an example of a single where maybe radio didn't get it and then all of a sudden the streams are bearing fruit and then radio all of a sudden is much more open to the conversation? Yeah, I think the biggest song that that, that refers to uh in in that comes to the top of my head immediately was a track called all the time by david james um the streaming partners totally embraced that song uh we got it playlisted on a major playlist in australia we have a deal in australia with abc um down there and it was on a uh, fresh country playlist and it was we were streaming 20 25,000 streams a day on spotify on this track but we couldn't get arrested on radio the track was sitting in the 50s sitting in the 60s and i finally i was so frustrated because our streams were so far ahead of the other artists who were on the canadian chart that i spent a sunday morning and i wrote down i started an email and i went to the media base chart and I wrote down the 14 artists. We were at number 40 on the charts. There was 14 artists, Canadian artists, that were ahead of us. I pulled their chart position. I pulled how many spins they had that week. And then I pulled their streaming numbers. And I sent that to our radio promotion guy, Dale Peters. And he was like, David is out streaming eight of these 14 acts that are getting anywhere from 30 to 63% more spins a week. And I'm like, if you don't go and tell radio that, I'm going to get on the phone and go tell radio that. And it worked. We All of a sudden, it was like, holy cow, we've never seen this type of information presented to us in this way. And all of a sudden, the song started to get ads. Did it get us to where we wanted to be? We peaked at 20 on it? No. But we were so far down the line with the song that by the time we caught radio in position it was too late because the early believers in the track wanted to fall off of the track which is a huge problem that's happening right now in canadian country radio it's taking so long to get the b and c level breaking artists through the system to get as many stations on it as you possibly can that you're you're seeing the early believers come off the track before you can get the ones that are late that's tough for sustaining an industry and a business, and hopefully something in the short term uh, can be addressed to to make that happen. Because you see it, you see your songs dropping off in the mid forties. If they get over the next hump, you see them dropping off in the mid thirties. If they get over the next hump, you usually see them drop off in the mid twenties. If you get into the teens, you've probably got a shot at getting into the top ten. If you start leveling off and losing and just sitting there in the mid twenties, you're done because it's just you can't push it over the edge that's really hard. yeah it's, it's like playlist constipation right yeah. and uh and it's uh it's a painful problem so what's the solution to it 
I wish I knew. I, I wish I knew. I, I, I think there's been some rumblings that I've heard of the CRTC uh, looking at CanCon regulations and altering those CanCon regulations in the course of the next little while. Does that increase the percentage of CanCon to Canadian radio? Maybe. Does that make a difference? Does you know the percentage of gold and recurrent drop to increase current Canadian country or Canadian artist? Maybe that helps a little bit. You get a few more slots, but it's all it's all relative to how much great Canadian music is coming out there. We have a ton of great Canadian artists who are all releasing music, but you need to have that quality that's got to go with it as well too. So that's really tricky. But and again, to go back to the streamers, and I'm sure that you saw this today as well too, that Apple Music just announced Apple Music Radio, which is that that could potentially be a game changer. Because if you, can, if you can get featured into that and coupled with your streaming uh, playlists, all of a sudden it's a, whole, it's a whole new game. It's a whole new world. And you don't have to rely as much on terrestrial radio to add your song you know, because you can develop it through the streaming platforms and, and get eyeballs and, and ears on it, which is what you want to do. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the whole, you know, all ships rise with the tide concept as it comes to business and, and art. And uh, but over the last decade, the level of competition at terrestrial radio is just through the roof, it, like compared to where it was even a decade. It ago. is well, compared to when I started this company. When I started this company, there were there was Ron was Ron Kitchener, uh, Open Road. Uh, was the king of the castle. None of the major labels cared about Canadian country. None of them, I don't think any of them, at least when, that I can remember, had any direct signings in Canadian country whatsoever. And the popularity of this genre with, you know, Keith going on American Idol and Blake going on The Voice and Taylor moving from pop or country to pop was great in terms of taking country music to the next level and mainstreaming it. But that also meant that the major labels were going to get involved. And I have a lot of friends who work for the major labels. I disagree totally as an ex major label employee in terms of how they just spend, 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 spend with no, nobody really looking at the P and L to see how much they've spent and how much that top five or number one has really cost them in comparison to how we would do it uh, from a P&L point of view. And that makes it really tough, really tough. So you, you think it was the the interest that was generated in the format south of the border that forced major labels in Canada to sign more domestic artists directly? Do you think that's what it was? Or do you think it was the fact that the business up here just evolved to a point where it became – uh, almost like they needed to be involved or it would look egregiously uh, you know, out of bounds for them not to be signing artists up here because of the numbers that they were putting out. They, they, they did not have a choice. They, they had to get into the game, and the genre had become so popular. So you, and you would see this as well, too. You would start going to the festivals, and all of a sudden you would see major label employees who hate country music who are now in the backstage area doing what you know industry people do backstage i'm like this is crazy like this is great for the genre because major labels can propel things forward and they can make things bigger and they can make things more attractive but 
at a certain point, and, and we've had this discussion, at a certain point, the finance division is going to look at the P&Ls and go, what the hell are we doing here? Because they they spend like it's a pop act, but they they sell like it's a country act. And a Canadian country act is never going to sell what a Justin Bieber is or, or any of those major pop crossover acts. Canadian acts, it just we don't have that ability. Maybe one or two artists can, can really command that top dollar in the Canadian country scene, but most can't. And, and the income and the revenue that comes in from sales and streaming is, is severely less, unless you can get on the major playlists driven out of Nashville and, and other parts of the world. Yeah, you almost have to break internationally. And that's why you guys have put a such a full court press as a company, too, on your efforts in Australia, the United States and abroad. And yeah. uh, obviously, that seems to be paying dividends. Now, do you have mm-hmm. more aspirations to grow that aspect of your business and do more internationally? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's it's one of the great features about Spotify for Artists is that it breaks down your top 10 countries. We're in the process of knocking off our top 10 countries. So in January uh, of this year, just pre-COVID, um, we were in the UK and we have a deal sitting on the table now uh, for UK, uh, Ireland and all of Europe uh, that's tied into AEG and and getting our artists on the C2C festivals that are over there as well too. So um, that that we've parked it for now because until we can actually get the artists into the territories, it just doesn't make sense to do it. But we're we're going after those markets aggressively. Um, the UK is it's it's coming. You can see it um, every every week. You can see just a, we get a little bit, few more streams there in that territory. Germany is really starting to happen for us. Sweden, Norway, France, uh, all of those places are, are really starting to develop a, a country scene there that is legit uh, with the help of what AEG has been able to do with C2C festivals over there. So um, when we go on these international trips, um, I, I'm trying to get myself introduced to the Apple Music label, this guy, the Spotify label relations people, the Amazon people, and, and get my face in front of them while we're, while we're in those territories because it pays huge dividends when, when they see a Jess Moskaluk song coming. It's like, oh, yeah, I remember when Mike was in talking about this song. And, and that's happened where we've gotten some love on those, those lists outside of the U.S. because of our relationships and because of you know spending time with them when we were in the market. Now, as the industry continues to globalize, thanks to streaming, what's the future for terrestrial radio domestically? Because I've been hearing for two decades that there'll be no terrestrial radio. You know, you've probably heard that too multiple times. And it's like, it's still here. It's still strong. It's still a pillar in our format. Yes, it is. Um, What are your thoughts for the next five to 10 years for terrestrial radio? Like, where does it go? Does it continue to be a player? I think there is always a need for the local news, weather, and sports. So as long as people need that um, while they're driving to work or or going through their day, then I think radio plays a huge part in, in that. Is there going to be the the number one place where music is discovered? I I don't know. I, I really don't know. Um, Interesting question, but I've heard the same thing of you. It's going away, it's going away, and it's going away. But when you talk to the radio folks, it's like, yeah, we're down a little bit, but we're holding our own and we're doing some new things. And, and, uh, you know, it's not as dire as what everybody makes it to be. So I I don't, I think it'll still be around. It it may 
ebb and flow a little bit like everything does in this business, but I think it'll still be around. Yeah. The, uh, the benefit of radio, at least from a consumer perspective or a, a listener perspective, which uh, I'm a fan of the format have been forever. You, I know you love country music is that it, it curated and worked as a filter to a degree. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, radio was the gatekeeper, right? They would give us the opportunity to discover new stars by sort of separating the wheat from the chaff, so yep. to speak, right? And uh, and I do worry about the long-term implications of, you know, so much news, so much information, so much music, and so many playlists. And it's mm-hmm. like, how do we continue to have somewhat of a star system, mm-hmm. right? When uh, When the reality is, uh, no one's, no one's filtering it for us anymore. Yeah. And, and I totally agree with that. One of, one of the hardest things that I struggle with on a day in and day out basis is I can look at my streaming numbers and it's like, Oh wow, we got 20,000 streams on Jess Mosk on the first day. That's a lot of streams, but what does that mean? Where five years ago I could go to the iTunes top 200 play uh top 200 digital download list and i could see jess moskalu got number three and i knew that number three on the chart meant that i was selling around 35 to 3800 units a week so i knew what my revenue was and i knew that that would generate into popularity with the music directors and program directors to get the song on the radio to create the buzz and the demand and all the rest of that stuff i don't know what a million streams does for the artist I don't know if it resonates yet to create a fan base that is rabid for when that artist goes out and tours Canada. I, I, don't, right. I have no concept, no idea of how that works. I think it works. Um, I think it will continue to help artists build a fan base. But that's always been the greatest thing about your local radio station. And, and when you're taking artists through is you can start to build those those fans at the ground floor if it's a brand new artist like a Tyler Joe Miller and and do those you know listener win your way in events and all the rest of that stuff that you, if if terrestrial radio ever went away you, you wouldn't have that opportunity to do that so how now you've got to redevelop how you your plans to how you're going to break an artist and from a management and label perspective how much does the live strategy play into what you're rolling out for an artist overall is it still as important as it was? Is it less important than it was before streaming was so proliferated? It's it's vitally important to us. I feel um, the live nothing replaces the live experience and, and having the fans relate to the artist and relate to that song and, and and building those those grassroots super fans in each one of those markets. So when you go in and do the initial win your way in events or the backyard barbecue events, and then you come back the next time and you're in a, a little bit of a bigger room to another coming again and, and just developing that word of mouth and all the rest of that stuff, the live piece is huge. And, and it's going to be interesting over the course of the next little while on the artist development side of things, because I think we may lose a few artists who just will not be able to make a career out of it without the live performance piece being there for them to sell merch and CDs and things off, off table and, and perform for people as well too. And if you're relying strictly on your streaming revenue and digital downloads to get you through, that's, 
that's tough sledding for sure. So the live yeah, especially when you're starting out. Yeah, exactly. Now I'll, I'll back that up and, and say that we've always had a philosophy much to the artist uh, chagrin of holding our artists back in terms of not pushing them out into the live circuit too quickly. Uh, and I know that we've had this conversation with Tyler Joe Miller, where it's like, what's your plan? What's your live plan? Our live plan is we're, we're going to create demand on the live circuit for Tyler Joe by holding them back and by getting that number one, which was not our, our plan, but it's, it's a great part of the plan now and developing his his demand in the markets before we've even been there so that we can hopefully bypass some of those smaller paying lousy time slot gigs and get him into a position where we're not bleeding money when we're out on the live tour circuit and we're actually at least you know breaking even or getting or making a few bucks for him as well create a career i i don't want the 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 one hit thing and then gone i'm, I'm anytime my son artist it's for the long term to try and get them to a point where they can have a career in the canadian country music scene yeah and i think that's a brilliant strategy you know build the demand and then and then nurture it right because you know traditionally speaking a lot of old school managers wanted their artists on every summer festival regardless of the slot regardless of the money and it was like push 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 and as an agent uh, a lot of times I would be looking at it going, okay, if this is the mandate from the top, I'll execute. But here's my concern. That artist has one song that people know. Mm -hmm. They're going to be on the stage for a 60-minute set. So what are they going to do for the other or 56 longer. minutes? Right, or right. longer. Or yeah. longer in some cases. And and if they're playing at noon on these major festivals, I mean, everybody's hung over from the night before. Nobody's there in the audience. Uh, go a step further, say they're, you know, playing for 2,500 bucks, but because the festival was a fly in, it's costing 3,500 to get them there. Yeah. Right. So now you've got this artist on the road all summer um, playing to, to diminutive audiences. If there's anyone there at all, yeah. losing money on top of it, uh, their, their name on the poster is so small at the bottom that you can barely see it. And, and to me, it was always like, why are we doing this? Why are we putting these artists in this position where they just can't win? You know, I think that, that one of the most imperative objectives of an of a agent manager team is set them up for the win. So if that means having the hard conversation with your artist for six months or a year and going, hey, buddy, I'd love you to go out and play all these festivals. I know you're itching to get out there. But until we substantiate a cost or sorry, a price point whereby you can go out, play at least three or four tracks that people are familiar with. So they really get yep. to know the brand and get that brand entrenchment. And you're not losing money and investing to go play. Let's just wait. And, yep. uh, and, and, and so it's nice to see that catching fire a bit more in the last five years, you know, 10 years, especially with your organization. You guys get it. And, um, you know, but for a long time, it was like we kept following these same patterns over and over. And not only are we not doing the artist a disservice or we're doing the artist a disservice in the short term, but I really think we're also contributing to a, a long term issue in that, you know, if you've got a festival buyer who paid you twenty five hundred dollars this year, good luck getting 15 grand out of the next year. You're right? a twenty five hundred dollar act. Right, right. No you how kind much of success you've had. You get pegged in that price point, so it's yeah. it's 
it's dangerous, right? And, and I again, not to take away from the fact that I understand there are agents out there and managers and artists who want to get out and work. They want to press the flesh. I respect that. But unless you're doing it in a manner whereby people are sticking with the brand, the song, uh, and the product, and getting it, and wanting to buy merch, and wanting to see you again, uh, it's like, what's the point of going out in the summertime and losing $30,000? What I'm trying to do, and, and what we're trying to do as a management company, is is get our artist roster to a point that the acts that don't have a, a, a an agent, agents are calling me and interested right. in representing my artist because at that point I know that they know that they can do something to, to, to position this artist to, to make some money. At the end of the day, this is about the music business. It's about making money. And I have, I hate, you know, seeing acts go on at noon in a $500 slot. And, and the talking point is they're on the festival and then, and that's it. And then it's over and nobody's seen them. Nobody cares. And, and then if they do have some success, like you said, it's really hard to move from 500 to, to $10,000 for a slot. And because you're, you're pegged as that act. And the, the second greatest phone call in the world, if it's not from an agent, is from a festival buyer who's interested in bringing your act in and, and, and you're, you didn't have agency representation um, because you know you're doing things right. It is the toughest thing in the world as an artist to go through. We went through it with Chad. We went through it with Jess. Um, we're going through it with, with David James to a certain extent. Um, and it's hard because they want it. They want to get out and play and, and they need to generate some money and income and live and all the rest of that stuff. But now once you get to the other side, the other side uh, tends to put a lot more money in your pocket and sustain you a career instead of just that, you know, period of time where you, you might have a couple of songs on the radio. Right. The short term win, you know, uh, can really be overshadowed by what it's actually costing the artist. And that's one of the things I like about you guys. You're a long term strategic uh, management company and label. So you're looking for long term strategic partners not opportunistic, short-term driven people who go, oh, this act is hot. Let me sign them. I can make some money this summer. You yeah. know, you want to be in a position where the agent that that approaches you approaches you with a plan. Mm-hmm. And and then you can communicate that to your artist. And then you're in a in a great position as a manager to go, listen, I've heard three pitches or four pitches from four high-level agents. This is the individual who gets you, gets your product and is going to be able to represent you the best in the marketplace. Yeah. And, you know, waiting for that to happen, incubating and and allowing that value to build to get to that point. I mean, th- those are a lot of hard conversations in the meantime. It's a lot of, of stress though, too, because you're, you're not certain that phone call is ever going to come. So while you're trying to do the best you can to keep things moving forward, you don't know if it's ever going to happen. That's one of the things about artist development. When it works, it's amazing. When it doesn't work or you flounder or you, or you flatline, it's awful because nothing seems to work and nothing seems to be going to get you to the next phase. What gets you to the next phase is finding that song that, that just relates to people. And we say this all the time in our camp. The next three minutes could change your entire your entire life. Right. Keep buying cigarettes, two minutes and 51 seconds. Tyler Joe Miller, pillow talking 302. Yeah. 
There's yeah, the, two two great examples right there. Yeah. Now, as a manager, and I know you're stubborn, and I mean that as a compliment. Huh. But at what point do you pull the plug if it's like, okay, we've tried, we've tried, we've tried. We're into this project four, five, six years. We haven't been able to crack a top ten at radio. We're not getting the streams. The marketplace isn't responding. At what point generally do you go, listen, maybe I'm just not the right fit for you because that's difficult to get to that place. But at some point, you probably do get there. Yeah, and, and it's usually the P&L statement that will reveal how much more effort you can put into it. So when you get that long in the tooth and it's not happening, chances are, if I, I've always had this look, if I'm not happy, chances are the artist is not happy as well too. And at that point, you can sit down and you can have that conversation and and be open-ended about it at that point in terms of, okay, what would you do if you were in my position? We're umpteen singles into this thing. There's more red on this piece of paper than you can shake a stick at. If I cut all my ties right now, I can, rec- I can at least make back 20% of that red number. But if I continue on, it's going to be another investment of $100,000. With no guarantee that we're, we're, well, we're certainly never going to get out of the red unless something unbelievable happens. But do I want to make that investment? Because it's hard work. And, and when it's not working and not getting it to where you, where you want it to be, that's usually the, the time that you've got to take a look at that and have that conversation. Or make a decisive decision to go, okay, we're giving this one more shot whether it's a song or a couple of songs and if it doesn't work uh, at that point we need to we need to wrap this thing up and that's sad you know because you sign every artist i sign i'm signing to make them a star and make them profitable and, and try to give them the opportunity and you know over the years not every act that we've signed has worked and there's been some colossal disappointments you know Haley was one of the biggest disappointments we've ever had in this roster and for those people who don't know Haley she's an amazing amazing guitar player um, that we thought we had something international there and it just we could not get it off the ground we just couldn't do it she Uh, was like a female Keith Urban like it was just so cool and so different but but maybe ahead of her time Maybe just a little too outside the box for radio. Yeah, but but it's funny now because you see what what a Lindsay L is doing, and, and right, Haley was before Lindsay L, um, and just as as talented, and 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 no disrespect to Lindsay, but Haley might be a little bit more talented in the, the ability to play the guitar. She she's just got this talent, but we could not get it off the ground of our life depending on it. Just so frustrating, so frustrating. Is it preferable for you as a manager to sign an act and build them from the ground up and be involved collaboratively in that process from day one? Or would you prefer to sign an act that's got some equity, got some things rolling already, maybe had a label deal or two, just things haven't worked out and now you've got a plan and vision for them? I mean, where do you generally defer? What would you rather have? I I, I would rather start at ground zero. Um, we have signed artists who have had some success along the way over the years of, uh, to the label side of MDM recordings. Uh, and every, every time I've done it, it's just never turned out well because the, if it's a label that was, if, sorry, if it was an artist that was signed to a major label, 
their expectations of what a record company is are so far out of whack in comparison to how an indie label operates. Um, and the expectations are just don't line up with the realities of, of, of what can happen. Um, when you start at ground zero with somebody like a Jess Moskaluk or a David James or a Tyler Joe Miller, um, you get to build it together. And, and I'm a big fan of, of educating my artists along the way so that we, all, we, we get that buzz of the initial success and, and everything that's going, and then we build off that. But at the same time that we're building off it, we're educating our artists to become smarter, to become better, to, to work on their craft, to understand how this machine works that is the music business to, to get you forward. And um, I've, I've had acts that were signed to major labels, and I know that you talked about this in the, in the Kitchener thing, and that I wanted it more than, than what they did. And that's that's death. It'll never work when when the label or manager wants it more than what the artist. Does. And and there's this interesting thing that I've seen time and time again, where certain artists they want to be a star. They want this thing that enca encapsulates success and being on the road and having fans. But they will do everything in their power to stop that from happening. It's a weird thing where they just they're they're afraid of success, and 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 I've seen that a couple of times along the way as well too with with acts that we've had and and major label acts or that were signed to major label deals. It was like they almost get in, in their own way of preventing what they want to happen. Right. It's a bizarre thing. It's so, a it's a it's a yeah. I, I think it's part and parcel to some aspects of art artist psychology. There's this pattern of self-sabotaging behavior at times. And I think I think just like uh, we all have a little bit of it in us, depending on what it is we're tackling. A lot of times for them, it's 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 the fear of if I put it all out there and I show up at my best 100 percent and the marketplace doesn't accept it, I can't take that. Mm -hmm. But. If I show up at 60%, I can always say I didn't really want it anyway. Yeah. You know, and it's yeah. like this. I agree. I mean, I've seen yeah. it too. It's like this strange safety oh, the, mechanism. It is the most bizarre thing in the world to see it, to go through it. And, and it's like, wow, like it, it just crazy, just crazy. So when you identify that, when you see an artist going down that path, and I'm sure you have multiple times, you alluded to it. How do you get them back on track? Do you do you, do you actually confront them on, hey man, something's off here. I don't know why you're doing this because it's completely not aligned with your goals, and you identify it and then you try and root it out. Or do you take a more, I guess it depends on the client, but do you take a more indirect approach with it? Like how do you generally handle that? Sometimes it's tough love. Sometimes it is a very straightforward candid conversation about this needs to change and here's the reasons why this needs to change if it's one specific instance in other areas and other artists that I've worked with the damage is done and it's too late you can't fix it, it it's unfixable uh, because of the the decision that they've made for, for for whatever they're doing we will I will will I will give the artists as much rope as they can, as they can handle. Mm -hmm. But that rope gets shorter when I see things where they're, 
they're just not they're not doing their job they have right. a job to do and if it and if it's happening repeatedly then at a certain point you just gotta go you know what i think we're not that we're, we're not the guys for you yeah and i think there's something to the uh to the uh the unspoken intent of a good industry person of a good manager who you know it's one of the reasons why i don't end up at war with a lot of my clients in these situations or when I witness something like that, because a little bit like a parent, they can feel that you want the best for them. Mm-hmm. And when they feel that, then they know that you're not coming from a place of controlling them or dictating to them or even steering them. It's more like, I just want what's best for the best that exists within you as a human being. Mm-hmm. And, and what you're doing isn't it. So yeah. So how do we serve that master, right? How do we bring out the best part of you and serve that, whatever that is, and and continue to move forward? And if you're not interested in doing that, then, you know, it's going to be too hard for me to continue to be involved because obviously I can't, I can't bring out the best in you, Mm -hmm. but you know, I've been there too. It's a, it's a difficult place to be and, and always a challenge. Yeah. And, and I think, one of the frustrating things for me that I've, now that I'm 12 years in on, on the business of working with artists directly, the, the way that I have been within in MDM, and uh, is is when an artist um, leans on you heavy in the early going, but then thinks that they're smarter than you when you start to have some success, and and it gets down the line to where they they start making stupid mistakes because they're not taking what they're the advice that their team is giving them and providing them with direction it's like i i got this i know all and we've seen this in numerous times with with artists who who have some level of success and then the wheels completely fall off even though it's the same team nine times out of ten i believe that it's because the artist has stopped listening to the people who got them to the certain level that they were at in the first place because they thought that they were better or they didn't value the input that their team was bringing to the table. That's frustrating. I've had that happen a couple of times. Right. And if you're a good manager and you actually care about your client, you're not always going to be the person who tells them what they want to hear. You're going to tell them what they need to hear. And sometimes that's a massive distinction. That is one of the greatest things about within our management company. For the most part, I'm never alone. Um, I've got input from other parties, whether that's Carmen or whether that's Mitch or, or, or even Tiffany to to a certain extent or Lori Brown on, in the Don Amaro case. So I'm always the bad guy. I'm the key man in the majority of the uh, management clauses that we have. And that is understood that the good news is probably going to come from Mike. The bad news and the things that need to change is probably going to come from Mike as well, too. So within our family and within our team you can have those altercations and you can have those disagreements as long as it doesn't become personal totally fine with arguments and disagreements but at the end of the day we take what the issue is we solve the issue and we move forward without getting into personal stuff because if it gets into personal stuff then you're in a whole another area of trouble so i'm always the bad guy which really sucks because it's hard it's hard to be that guy you know, day in and day out. And I'm sure that the artists are going, Oh God, Denny's calling me again. And he's all over me again for, for this. Why doesn't he ever tell me any good news? Well, chances are 
if the good news happens, you're going to find out from somebody else before we can get to you anyway. <laughs> we years right. ago, this is hilarious. We were we had gone uh, plat gold platinum with Jess on cheap wine and cigarettes, and we were holding it back from telling her. And all of a sudden, I, we were on our way to the airport. Me and Mitch, and Mitch is like, "Oh, Jess found out about her platinum award." And I'm like. How in the world can she find out about her platinum award? She's freaking out, totally excited. We were planning on making it a thing. And I think we were going to the CCMAs to do this whole thing and present Surprise her. her. Yeah, exactly. And it turned out to be Music Canada posted it out on their Twitter feed. And I'm like, you guys don't have one cent invested into this artist. What gives you the right to be able to do that? And it was like, oh, well, you didn't click off the little box that says that we're not supposed to speak. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. You guys need to change your policies because that would have been a great opportunity for me to be able to go to Jess and say, hey, guess what? I have some good news for a change. You went platinum. And I never had that opportunity. But I still, you know, I'm still the one that's got to go with the bad news when, when things aren't going well or, or where things aren't going the way that we want them to. But our relationship with Jess specific, like she's so involved now and has taken so much of what we did in the early days off my plate now, because I trust her. I trust her and Carmen to make the decisions on creative stuff and, and graphic stuff. And she knows her brand and she knows her image inside out um, to the point where I totally trust her. And she doesn't make, mistakes like you know other artists would who just can't they can't handle that amount of responsibility and that's not to say they're immature and and, and not smart it's just it's it's a lot it's a lot you know just yeah. just a full-time job full-time job well you know you have a shaved head so you play the heavy role pretty well you know <laughs> you can play the tough guy besides that you got good backup in mitch and carmen for sure yeah because uh i've 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 seen how well they deal diplomatically with difficult conversations and how respectful they are, but how firm they are and building a, a great team is critical. Well, one now, of, the, one of the, the things that I really like about the way that we're set up is that we cover between Mitch Carmen and I'm going to bring Tiffany into this. She doesn't manage yes. today, but she's very much involved. She's my right hand person. Mitch's uh, skill set is, is music. And, and he gets right. music and he knows music and he's a great player and he can talk that language to the artist. Carmen is live. Carmen is image. She's branding. She's merch. She's on the road. She's the tour mom, which is a totally different mindset where I'm the business guy. So when you, and, and then Tiffany is, is becoming more important in the brand sponsorship area. When you put those four things together, it becomes pretty powerful because you you're, you're now covered in major areas of what it takes to move an artist's career forward as well too and i don't need all the glory i i care less about that i want the artist to win um but when you've got that dynamic to come together it makes for some interesting conversations we don't always get along we don't always uh like what's going on and the decisions that are being made but we've been doing it for 12 years it's it's working so uh, we'll just continue on down that road and the artists yeah, like it as well too you can't sharpen a blade without some friction Absolutely. Right. You need a little of that. So you guys have had a banner year, lots of success as a label. What's next for MDM? I want to continue on uh, finding, signing, developing the best Canadian talent that I can. Um, what does that mean? Um, 
I don't know. I'll know it when I see it. Um, we're pretty male heavy right now, so I don't think it's going to be another male, but who knows? Um, you know, I, I'd love to expand the roster a little bit more. We've got one slot for sure that's open, potentially two if we needed to go down that route. Um, but continue on with artist development for sure, continuing to take Jess to the next level, um, take Bobby Wills, get him back on track and get him to where I think he can be, uh, break David, uh, break Tyler Joe to, to a further extent, and get Don Amaro in front of the audiences that, that I believe he should be in front of. He's uh, an unbelievable singer. I think it's just a matter of time for before him. He will be a household name in this country. Um, that's my passion. That's that's what gets me going every day, um, and that's that's what I love to do. And and we're 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 finally on the other side of this downslope that we're on, and 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 continuing that upward trend is to is to find another act or two and and continue to work with what we have and, and do the best job that we can to to move them forward. So well, at that point, it just becomes you know when do I want to retire. And when would that be? I mean, because you, you, clearly this this does light your fire. Clearly you enjoy it. Yeah. I don't know. I, I've said to Jess numerous times, I, I, it's time for me to retire when I just don't feel that I'm contributing to the level that I need to contribute to. And before that ever happens, um, we will have those discussions so that if we need to you know, move you into a, a label deal or something like that, or, or, or make some adjustments on the management side, then that, you know, it's going to happen long before I get pick up the phone and go, Hey, I'm out. Right? Like I'm done. Um, that's not, that's not my thing, but I, the music business is, I don't want to be, and, and we've, we've been doing this for a long time. I don't want to be that guy at the conferences who is well past his best before date, but hanging on for dear life. Um, because he didn't, he didn't save enough money, or didn't. He's got to work to to keep going. I don't, I don't want to be that guy. Um, I just don't know when that is. I'll be fifty nine in November. Is it when I'm sixty? I don't know. Is it sixty two? Is it sixty five? I don't know. I don't know. I'll yeah, know but it. I mean, if, I'll know it here. If mind. if you continue to be as passionate and as enthusiastic, and you know, the other thing to think about is what's on the other side of that for you, right? Because uh, that that's a big consideration. Like, yeah. you know, 65 sounds like the right time to retire, but not if you're going to live till 90 with no purpose anymore. Yeah. And uh, and I know you love what you do. And so I, I think the business certainly would have a gaping hole in it if you left now. Um, but it's, it's good that you bring that level of self-awareness to it. But, uh, you know. I, I'm more concerned because i own the company right and i have an umbrella of 14 or 15 people underneath me it's like what happens to those people in addition to the artists because is somebody going to buy mdm recordings well maybe but they're buying they're buying me for, for the most part and that's not to sound egotistical my name is all over the company so and I'm involved in every aspect of what happens in this company and every aspect of everything that's going on with the artists. If if I get to the point where I want to step back a little bit, I don't want to sell somebody a bill of goods. Right. So that I struggle with that as well. And I don't and I want the younger people to still have the opportunity to to have a gig in the music business as well, too, um, regardless of whether it's with MDM. And that that just worries me. 
there's there's a lot of stress that goes on in my brain in terms of just making sure that if it ever came to an end and we got up one day and it was all over that those people would be looked after whether it's the artists or whether it's the the support crew that we have around us I think about that all constantly well it's it's stress but I think it can be reprocessed as inspiration too I mean it's 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 not a bad thing to understand implicitly that you have uh, people who depend on you to continue to add value people who depend on you for their livelihoods, mm-hmm. you know, like as, as I get it. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a duality. I understand that, you know, there's, there's a responsibility and an accountability aspect to that, but sometimes that's where the magic is because you know, yep. you're not replaceable. And, you know, once you sort of like settle with that and go, yeah, I can't be replaced. So I just better step up and bring my best version of myself to my job every day because people depend on me. Uh, that's a, that's a rewarding feeling too. Believe me, when you're in the ter- trenches and and when you go through what we went through for the that was the hardest two years of my entire life because I, I there was numerous times when I did not think we were going to get a, ever get out of that hole and get to the other side where there was at least a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. It, it so just, what kept you hanging on? Stupidity. It's the only thing I know how to do. It's the, it's, I, I, I believed so much in the artists that we had that I was like, we, we will get through this. I mean, we compounded our problem in terms of having three artists leave the roster, but we also shut our biggest artists down for six months in that period of time as well too, where we didn't release anything new music wise or, or, but it was the right decision to make. And every decision that I make is, is not usually based on dollar signs for the most part. It's based on passion and it's based on, is this the right move for the artist? And at that period of time it was. And, it's I could feel it starting to change a year ago at the CCMAs. I was like, or, or when we were getting ready to release Jess's stuff when we got back from Australia. And I was like, holy cow, all this is going on. Here I am going to Australia to have one of my artists play. And then that that event that we did, and then David started to catch on with, with all the time. And there was huge buzz about Don Merrill. And then Tyler Joe comes out of nowhere. And all of a sudden, I'm like, we're back. We're back, mm-hmm. and I and I I I worked harder getting us back up this way, than when it starts going like this. There's nothing you can do. You just can't because you can't replace what's walking out the door like that. It's a two year pro- it's a two year process. And well, you can do what you did, which is you can lean into it, work harder, work smarter, get innovative, right, and and make a comeback. You did yeah. do that, yeah. You know, and and so that's always an option. Um, I just think the uh, the business is better for you in it, and uh, I'm you. glad you're part of it. And uh, I know I, I know you love golf, but like, how much fucking golf can a guy play? <laughs> so you know, you, you might as well hang in there for a few more years, especially <laughs> when you continue to be such a pillar in the business for for all of these artists and and uh, and all of the industry people who look to you to, for wisdom and uh, for inspiration as well. well I, I still love what I do, and and. It, but it, it is as every year gets a little harder because it's just it's a little harder to stay out until 11 or 12 o'clock or one o'clock in the morning when you're at, you know, the CCMAs for five or six days. It's 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 harder to do. So it's changing your mindset from what 
It used to be, which was the guy who was up till three or four or five o'clock for four or five nights in a row, big smile on your face and doing the panels. And, and you've been there, right? We, we've all done that, that, that stuff to managing your time so that you're not totally exhausted on, on the Sunday night and you can still get back to running your business on the Monday or Tuesday after the CCMAs once you, you know, everything's back to normal or whatever, whatever <laughs> it is, the festivals or whatever. You also had some some health problems that probably really exacerbated the situation and made things so much worse, especially on the energy front. Now yeah. you're in a better space. You're taking care of yourself. Yeah. So, you know, for me, I just found that I couldn't stay out that late and drink anymore. <laughs> so so I had to like lay off the booze. And that was <laughs> tough because I like my gin and sodas. Right. Yeah. But it was like, if I'm going to be out till two in the morning, I have to drink soda water. Cause there's just no way I'm getting out of bed the next morning for that panel at yeah. 8 AM, you know? And, uh, and so there, there are little tweaks and little hacks. And, and I think that now that you've got your health back, you know, you've got some energy there too. And, and the, you know, the ability then to deploy some energy against your job and, and your life. Yeah. I I'm in a totally different place. And we were in, I'm going to say three or four years ago, uh, maybe well, around 2016. I, I was at rock bottom um, and we were in the Palmas doing a, a cool thing at this five-star resort in, uh, in, in, in Exuma in the Bahamas. And I, I just, I, I was done. I was totally exhausted. I was extremely burnt out. And that's where kind of my, I had the back problems, but at that point I started getting liver problems. So on the, on the second last day, my my eyes were completely yellow and Jess was like, Your eyes are like completely yellow. And I was thrown up and I was I was just not in a good place. And when I came back and saw my doctor, he's like, You need to shut it down. I need you to take two or three day two or three weeks just to get sleep. And I and I wasn't sleeping. I was sleeping maybe an hour or two a night because I would just toss and turn with so much that was going on in my brain, but I would still be trying to function at the highest level that I possibly could and stay out until five o'clock in the morning, drinking the wine and, and doing all the rest of that stuff. So were you it, drinking rum too? You were in the Bahamas. So. Well, probably a little bit of everything, a <laughs> little bit of everything, Fair that it, Fair that should, but that was kind of the wake up call. He's like, my doctor was like, you keep going this way. And you're you're gonna have some serious problems, or you need to make some adjustments. And it finally got through my thick skull that I was, you know, in my mid fifties, and I'm not a 21 year old anymore, and I need to make some adjustments. I still go out and I have my fun, uh, as we all do, and I pick my battles now. And and I'm just a little bit more health conscious about, you know, what I eat. I'm I'm with a personal trainer now twice a week, although it doesn't show. Um, but it's helped my back immensely, which was the biggest thing. Like I couldn't move. I would get up in the morning and be three hours before I could physically move without hanging onto walls. And it was awful. I never want to go back to that. So, but that you, you got to go through it to get to the other side to, to learn that you don't want to do that again. Right. So it's part of growing up. Mike, you're a beauty. I'm glad you're on the other side of that. Congratulations on all the success. We've been talking for more than an hour now and it's flown by. So <laughs> crazy. Um, I'd love Crazy. to have you on again. Thanks so much for uh, for sharing everything as openly and honestly as you were able to. That was awesome. No worries. This is great. A lot of fun. I didn't realize it's it's an, an hour and 20 minutes. Flew by yeah. faster than my gym session with my personal trainer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if that's a compliment or not, but I'll take it as one. <laughs> All good, my friend. All good. Pleasure talking Appreciate to you. Appreciate it, man. Great. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for doing this. We'll, uh, we'll right. chat with yeah, you here great. soon. Okay. okay. Take, take care, care, Jim.
拜。